For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Representative Shane Stone announced he is leaving his seat at the end of the month. The Oklahoma City Democrat has said in June he wouldn't be seeking re-election. This could trigger a special election in House District 89 before next year's general election. Ryan, what happened here? Well, I think that as you know, happens with a lot of these races, whenever you have term limits, you know, it used to be you could come into the legislature as a young person and serve for a very long time. It could be your part of your public service career. But now with term limits, I think it gets a lot harder. I mean, you see that deadline out there, it's harder to become. And even Representative Stone said of, in his advice was you need to become a subject matter expert when you're in the legislature. I remember when I got there, folks like Jerry Askins told me that. She said, find something you're passionate about and learn as much about it as you can. And that makes a lot of sense. It's really good advice. But when you've only got 12 years, it's hard to do that. And so it's, it's only natural that anybody in the legislature right now is looking uh, what's going to be next. I mean, unless you're in there as, a, as part of your retirement, you're probably not going to retire <laughs> in the legislature. So you're always going to be thinking about what's next. And I think a guy like Representative Stone, who has public service uh, in, his, in his bones, he wants to continue to do this. And uh, obviously, he's found an opportunity to continue to serve the public. We'll, we'll see what that is uh, in the future. Neva? Well, I think by making his resignation effective December 31st, it kind of changes the whole complexion. Right. We knew he wasn't going to run, but now this really will, I think, by statute, trigger a special election because it could not happen if it were an even-numbered year. But by doing it uh, before December 31st, it's going to kick this thing in motion. The governor's going to have his uh, 30 days to call the special. And the way these elections run, now, I mean, the primary runoff in general for the special election would likely take place. I mean, the dates would be January 14th, February 11th, or March 3rd are the first three uh, dates early next year that can be special election dates. So it will be interesting. And we already have one Democrat that announced back in June that was already running, Jose Cruz, who's a OCU uh, a uh, law graduate, someone that had, I believe, worked on uh, Congresswoman Kendra Horn's uh, staff mm-hmm. at one point, out there running, has raised money, uh, and so clearly uh, for uh, it's an advantage, at least uh, from his perspective, uh, being a Democrat, uh, jumping in now to uh, the seat that's opening up. And when you look at it, it really is a seat that does still trend uh, Democrat mm-hmm. in the numbers. HD89 is very Democratic seat. So, so how do you think that's going to work out? I think there'll most likely be a Democrat that comes out of that seat. I think the bigger question is when. I mean, I think that we can all probably agree Democrat likely wins that race, but it's a matter of who it is and when it is. And so if there's no other candidates in the race, uh, then we end up in a situation where, you know, maybe earlier in session, but it could be mid late part of the legislative session before this uh, House district has a representative in the state legislature. And but I think but I, an incumbent that's sitting in that seat. That's there. right. But I think also, I mean, when you have these special elections, I mean, the Republicans, uh, this is an opportunity to make a very competitive, you know, very competitive <laughs> effort to pick up the seat. As we know, in special elections, it's such a uh, low turnout proposition where it really is a ground game. It's who can raise the money, who can be intentional and all in for a very compressed period of time, knowing that they're going to have to turn right back around and do it all again at the end of the year and in the in the regular elections so i i think that it's going to be fascinating to uh uh, to kind of see how this one sets up very quickly and it will be an interesting early race next year and in these campaigns we often talk about turnout models and you so if you look at 
November 2020 presidential election, the turnout model, you know, basically who's going to show up to vote, you know, what that looks like, what does the electorate look like? That's kind of set in stone. I mean, it's really hard to manipulate a turnout model for a presidential election. Neva's exactly right. In a runoff, it's anybody's game. Yeah. And so if you can mobilize your base to get out and vote, you're going to have probably very low voter turnout. And whenever you have very low voter turnout, you can change and manipulate that, uh, that, that model in a way that makes sure that your candidate has an advantage. So even though this is a Democratic Wouldn't, seat, if you have a lot of enthusiasm behind a Republican candidate, it could be closer than it otherwise would be. And you also have 20% turning out. That's a, just that's a right. few votes. That's right. And you also have a much more compressed time uh, timeline in terms of between each of those elections, more so than you have in the, in the normal process. This coming Tuesday, Oklahoma City voters are going to the polls to decide the fate of MAPS 4. The extension of the penny sales tax raises about $978 million for 16 projects, and most include social issues such as housing, the homeless, domestic violence, intervention, and mental health, but it also includes a new multi-purpose sports arena and upgrades to the Chesapeake Energy Arena and the Thunder Practice Facility. Neva, how do you feel about MAPS 4? Well, I think when you when you look at even a, uh, a poll that was released uh, earlier this uh, earlier this week, uh, the uh, News 9 uh, Sooner poll, it showed 70, almost 73% support. The interesting breakout on that is that 49% of that, they said, was strongly support. Mm-hmm. So I think what we have here is a, is a situation where less than 20% say they strongly oppose. There's been no organized, no campaign. So it's been a very strong, well-organized uh, yes effort uh, led by the mayor and, uh, and, and many others, you know, across the community that have interest in many of these individual projects that they would like to see. So uh, I think even though we know that uh, historically maps from all the way back from the very first maps have never passed by wide margins. I think in this instance, uh, it would appear that the public uh, sentiment is strong enough uh, that, uh, you know, there's always the concern in a December 10th election uh, for turnout. And I think that's what we're hearing from all of the proponents of maps right now is, uh, you know, make, make an effort, you know, make your voice heard and go to the polls. And even today, early voting is taking place. So mm-hmm. I think it is, uh, I, I think at least at this point, that would be the observation I would have based on everything that's been said and we've heard. This is the first time I've not seen a massive organized no vote to it, especially with Max yeah. 3 that happened last time. Yeah, and I think that, you know, first of all, you know, early voting starts today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're an Oklahoma City resident, get out and vote. I mean, this uh, these elections we saw in, in Tulsa, they passed nearly a billion dollar sales tax package there. You know, 16% of the voters showed up. And, you know, I think that, you know, if you're an Oklahoma City resident, I know that December 10th, it's a crazy time of the year, but get out and vote, have your, whether you're for this deal or against this deal, get out and have your voice heard because it's important. And, and, and walk into that voting booth knowing that it's probably going to be a very low turnout. So when you show up to vote, your vote's going to carry a lot of weight in the ultimate return on this thing. Michael, you're right. There hasn't been a really organized effort against this. I think that there was a sense that if this was going to be defeated, it was going to be defeated in the courts when uh, former Councilman Shadid put uh, his challenge forward mm-hmm. saying that this violated the single subject rule. When that ultimately didn't prevail in front of the court and this uh, ballot measure went forward, I, I think that that was kind of the, that was the opposition campaign. And whenever that was done, now it's just a matter of turnout for the MAPS 4 folks. Um, you know, I think that it will, it will likely pass. Uh, you know, there's been a really solid campaign. There are a lot of folks, uh, for a variety of reasons that are interested in this. I, I hope that, um, you know, 
as somebody who is really interested myself, really interested in the investments in criminal justice, mental health, um, it would be nice in the future, whenever we're looking at MAPS proposals, if we didn't have to consider uh, funding these real needs for Oklahoma City, uh, while at the same time considering subsidies for some of the, the most richest, uh, some of the richest uh, members of our community, uh, and, and you know, soccer stadiums and improvements to the Thunder Arena and stuff like that. Um, that to me, whenever should Councilman, former Councilman Shadid put his uh, legal challenge forward, that seemed to be a really clear case of what log rolling looks like. Uh, you know, what the single subject rule is supposed to prevent, where you have to vote for something that you don't like in order to get something that you do. And whenever I walk into the ballot booth myself next week, uh, if I end up voting for this deal, which I probably will, I'm going to be voting for something that I really don't like, for a lot of things that I really don't like in order to get some marginal investments, albeit very important, but still marginal in comparison to the actual need uh, that, that they actually do want as a voter. But I would argue that, as, as we've talked about before, even with the original maps in 1993, there were multiple multiple issues on there, and a lot of a lot of diversity in the issues in terms of everything from uh, uh, the library to the canal and, and many other projects in between. So that's always been at the, at the core of how the um, maps proposals have been fashioned and how they've been taken to the people for a vote. I think in this instance with MAPS 4, one of the things that uh, I think the architects of kind of the, the campaign have done well is to say that this is about continuing the momentum uh, and, and, the go- and the mayor likes to use uh, the, the term that it's a transformational package and I think, I think that has connected with the voters because as he oftentimes has pointed out in many of these uh, 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 opportunities he's had to speak on the, on the matter is that there are a number of people now, particularly new younger residents of Oklahoma City, that don't remember. Uh, they don't remember in Oklahoma City pre-maps. And so I think that it will be interesting to see, and hopefully we'll see a, a voter uh, uptick in terms of turnout, which, which I think would be a strong reflection of the support, uh, however it goes, uh, uh, for uh, the citizens of Oklahoma City to make their voice heard. And I agree with you, Ryan, that that's something that's badly needed. The interesting thing about this maps for is that unlike past maps where there's a canal, a ballpark, uh, something that's being built, something being created, a lot of these social issues, how do we measure the success of that we we see hey a ballpark went up that's what maps built but this is with mental health facilities and with it's not it's not as physical yeah i mean I, well i think you know for the folks that that are affected it is i mean if if you if you're homeless and you need a place to to go whenever it's uh you know whether it's super hot outside or super cold outside and you need a you need shelter if there are more places to get shelter you know that's that's a real way to measure improvement if you're you have a mental illness and you're able to go get treatment instead of going to the county jail, that's an improvement. I mean, those are, those are things that I think uh, whenever I look at, you know, the way that they put this package together, you know, we've for years been investing in infrastructure, but now we really need to invest in people because if we don't, you know, the, the people that are, would otherwise be enjoying this infrastructure are going to be suffering either because, you know, they have a mental illness or they're experiencing homelessness or because, you know, they are, members of this community and you know those have an effect on all of us you know those 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 things have an effect on all of us so i'm these investments in people i think are worthwhile my problem with the, with the maps right now isn't that it makes these investments in people it's that these investments need to be so much bigger than they are i mean the need is so much larger than what we're appropriating with maps for but here. i think this one cent uh, proposal goes a long way to accomplishing some things that would probably not happen as quickly or at all potentially than if it were not for this particular uh, package that's uh, coming before 
for the voters. And I think it is a way not only to uh, improve the economy, but to create jobs. Uh, it certainly enhances the quality of life in terms of uh, the overall uh, uh, the overall picture in Oklahoma City. And I think it is something that the voters uh, need to pay attention to. There's been a lot of information out there. I will say they have done an exceptionally good job yeah. of, of pre- of presenting a very detailed look at all of these all of these uh, 16 uh, interconnected projects around the city and I think that will be a uh, key to how they move forward with similar uh, proposals that they will have down the road and, 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 more, and, well, and, and kudos to, to, to Mayor Holt and, yeah. and, to, and in particular to Councilwoman uh, Jo Beth Hammond who really made uh, a lot of the social services investments that this this could have been just another infrastructure uh, maps I mean it really could have and, and the investments in people here I think are really credit I think you can draw a direct line between uh, that happening to Councilwoman Hammond and uh, to Mayor Holt in particular. Oklahoma sees a record number of candidates file for its presidential primary. The three days of filing ended yesterday, resulting in 15 Democrats and six Republicans vying for the state's Super Tuesday vote on March 3rd of next year. Ryan, could the high turnout in candidates mean a high turnout in voters? Well, I, I don't know that that's going to be the correlation. I think we're going to have a really high turnout uh, because our, our primary is going to be really consequential, in particular on the Democratic side. Uh, you know, President Trump uh, unless he's impeached, is is very likely going to be, is, and he could be impeached by that point. Um, by uh, then, he's he's going to be the he'll get the Democrat or the Republican nom. Well, he could have got the Democratic nomination. Some of the filing, <laughs> pa- that, maybe that was the most interesting <laughs> thing. That was one of the most interesting things is that there was a mix up in the filing uh, on uh, whenever Governor Stitt turned it in. It wasn't Governor Stitt's fault, uh, but as it was filed. President Trump was actually placed on the Democratic, Democratic roster. <laughs> uh, they, they, they quickly corrected that, but that was maybe the most interesting thing. Um, but I think he'll be he'll be the Republican nominee. I think that the the big uh, the big pool of candidates, and you know, probably four or five of the top candidates, are going to be a real. Uh, there, there's going to be a lot of real competitive uh, uh, races in Oklahoma, and that's uh, our campaigns being run in Oklahoma. That's something that we're starting to get used to. And we saw some back uh, in the last election in 2016. You know, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton really competed for Oklahoma. Uh, they had people on the ground here. In particular, the Sanders campaign had a real organized movement that sustained for the last three years. Um, so I, you'll see that, and, and Democratic voters are going to have a chance. They're going to see a lot of these candidates. They're going to see some TV ads. That's that's really good for Oklahoma. Six six Republicans though uh, running five Republicans against <laughs> Donald Trump. I, are you surprised to see so many Republicans? No, and it's just like on the Democrat side. I mean, when you look at some of these people that have filed, I mean, they were able to get the paperwork in correctly and, and put down a five thousand uh, dollar cashier's check, and so they consequently have the opportunity to put their name on the ballot. But I mean, these are folks. I mean, uh, you know, on the Republican side, I mean, you have, uh, I mean, you have individuals who have run before. Uh, you know, in fact. Uh, you have in one instance you have uh, uh, a fellow from uh, uh, California who ran for president in 2016 as a Reform Party uh, candidate, uh, and you have uh, you have one that's now running as a Republican uh, that ran for president in 2012 as a Democrat. So I mean you have the you have these folks that for whatever reason decide they're going to you know pick some states and, and get on the ballot. But the bigger I think the bigger takeaway when you really look I think uh, Ryan is right. I mean the fa- the Democratic uh, primary will be fascinating. Sure. It will be a big day. I mean because you have uh, I mean you have 
the Bloomberg factor in terms of here's someone who's gotten in the race late, decided to opt out of going to Iowa and, and, and New Hampshire, and he's really doubling down with a lot of money uh, in these uh, uh, Super Tuesday states. Him, and yeah. we're seeing $300,000 already being spent on a flight mm-hmm. of uh, television ads here in Oklahoma. So that's going to be that's going to be an interesting race. But when you when you really handicap these races, I think uh, at this at this juncture in a presidential campaign, even in Oklahoma, you have to look at the fundraising uh, as the indicator of where the strength and where the support is. And on the on the Democrat side, I mean, Bernie Sanders, who who won last time uh, with 52 percent of the, the vote in the in the uh, pres in the Super Tuesday, uh, is leading with uh, having raised over 90,000 in the last FEC reporting uh, period that was through June the 30th and followed by, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren at 66,000 and and Cory Booker at 59,000. And then it really drops down. And, you know, interesting, even though Joe Biden got in in late April, so he had less time than some of these others, you still have him raising only $28,000 in in Oklahoma. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But on the Trump side, uh, you know, Ryan, I mean, when you look at uh, the strength of Donald Trump in the state of Oklahoma, he's raised over $350,000 since January Mm -hmm. in Oklahoma. And since he took office, he's raised over $575,000 in his FEC reports in Oklahoma. So the strength of uh, the president on the ballot uh, in 2020, I think these numbers really reflect where the support is and where it will continue to grow. Although historically, Oklahoma has not been very good at picking the nominee uh, as we were Bernie Sanders <laughs> in 2016 and Donald Trump came in second yeah, uh, yeah. In, in a very in, close in and very competitive yes. and a very and a, a very competitive multi-way candidate Correct. race at, yeah, that, at that, that time point in a wide, in a wide open campaign yeah so so do you think that maybe this time I mean obviously Donald Trump's going to be the nominee and he'll be picked in in, in March 3rd what about the Democrat do you think that Oklahoma will be able to pick the nominee this time or do you think I, it's yeah I don't think be... that we pick the nominee but I, I think that you know the the three uh, three or four or, you know, main players at this point, Buttigieg, Warren, Sanders, and Biden. I mean, if, if you look at them as, as the folks that I think are most likely going to be really competitive in mm-hmm. Oklahoma, um, you know, whoever wins Oklahoma, I mean, there's, I think that there's going to be some crossover to, to other states as well, in particular rural states, red states, and the, the ability of those Democrats to perform well there. Warren has, you know, some home state advantage here. Uh, Sanders, like I said, has uh, this incredibly organ, incredibly organized campaign apparatus in Oklahoma. I know that both of those campaigns are investing money in professional staff on the ground right now in Oklahoma. I'm assuming that those other candidates are as well. And so, I mean, that's, that. What that does is it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, walking into November, I, I, I don't dispute the fact that Trump's uh, assuming that he's still president and the, and the incumbent and on the ballot. Uh, I don't dispute that he'll win Oklahoma and he'll, he'll get our electoral votes, right. and, you know, hands down. That's not a question. But having this really strong, organized movement for these Democratic campaigns in Oklahoma, what it does is that it creates uh, some uh, some legacy beyond the 2020 campaign and allows for Democrats to continue to organize in 2020, 2020 2022, 2024. Uh, you know, eventually Oklahoma could become a purple state. And I think if you look at the 5th District, a lot of what happened in the 5th District with Kendra Horn winning in 2018, some of that's probably... 2018. 2018. It all blends together at some point. But I think that some of that's attributable to you know, a strong organizing effort that we saw in 2016 for the presidential right. campaigns here. 
Governor Stitt is coming out in opposition to an initiative petition to reform Oklahoma's criminal justice system. The petition we mentioned a few weeks ago keeps judges from increasing sentences because of prior convictions. The governor says he opposes it, but also says he has big ideas for corrections reforms to include sentencing reform. Neva, why would the governor oppose this? Well, I think uh, I think he was clear that his his opposition appears to be uh, really at the core because it would amend the constitu- the state constitution. I mean, he feels uh, that he has some big ideas, as you say, uh, that um, uh, that he's going to propose. Uh, I'm assuming in the state of the state before the upcoming legislative session, and it will be interesting to see because he has been a strong. Uh, advocate, a strong supporter of criminal justice reform. This is something that's rolled out uh, as a uh, as an initiative petition, and so the governor coming out at this point and uh, showing opposition um, uh, does kind of change. I would think the the landscape a little bit in terms of the overall uh, the overall picture. So, um, but it will be now that he has he's made these statements. I think it will be incumbent upon him to to uh, to really lay out a very clear de- definitive idea of what he wants to do in this next session. Ryan. You know, I think that the, the argument that amending the Constitution is, uh, is, is you know, out of bounds in Oklahoma, you know, that's not the right way to go about it. I don't know that that really holds a lot of weight. I mean, I think we talked about it some last year or in the last election cycle with uh, the optometrist mm-hmm. and Walmarts and whether yeah, or not that should be in the Constitution. You know, that to me you know, is, is a separate issue. I mean, this is, this is a really big fundamental right that we're talking about here for people that are accused of new crimes. And, uh, if we look at our state constitution, you know, we can, we can kind of laugh about it and say it's a Christmas tree with too many ornaments on it. Uh, you know, it's got, it's got some particularities in there, like the flashpoint of kerosene, you know, what we define as the flashpoint of kerosene (laughs) is in our state constitution, you know, but really if you, if you dig a little deeper, it really reflects an important political ethos. And that political ethos uh, of our state constitution was born at a time in our nation whenever voters were really beginning to challenge this idea uh, that legislators should be given a blank check to do whatever they wanted in their government. And so what happened whenever Oklahoma was founded was our founders said, we want a constitution that is very particular because we trust legislators, but we trust them with very strict limits on their powers. And that's exactly what this ballot measure does. I mean, it's in keeping with this Oklahoma ethos of we trust our lawmakers, but we don't trust you that much. And we want to put some limits on what you can and can't do. And we think that this, these types of sentences are so fundamentally wrong, so disconnected from reality that we don't want you to put, we don't want you to ever be able to use them uh, in a way that allows prosecutors to hold that kind of leverage over individuals in the criminal justice system. So uh, I'm, to me, I think that it's, it's as Oklahoman as Oklahoman can get to say that this is the way that we amend our constitution. We don't trust our legislators with this. Now, I, I sincerely believe that Governor Stitt wants to change the criminal justice uh, system. I really believe that. I think that he's committed to doing that. I, I would just ask that he reconsider whether or not uh, he should reconsider his, his position on this, especially if it's just granted in the constitution. Again, I think it's very Oklahoma to amend the Constitution in this regard. And I think, go no, ahead. No, well, so meanwhile, supporters are basically saying, well, you've, we've, we've wanted this for the longest time and you've done absolutely nothing. So we've got to do it ourselves. Well, and when he was explaining his position uh, Tuesday at the uh, Urban League of Greater Oklahoma City, when he was speaking to that group, he his point on on uh, trying to put this into the state constitution is he, he said that he believes that it peels back uh, enhancements for DUIs, for human trafficking, for domestic violence, some of the things that he doesn't believe specifically needs to be put in the state constitution. And that, 
appears to be uh, where his where his stated position is at this point in time, and it is something that I think he, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see how forcefully he wants to uh, kind of push this, uh, uh, you know, push this in terms of uh, uh, being a strong uh, force against the state question moving forward. So, uh, you know, he's come out and said that he's not for the, you know, for the Medicaid expansion. Uh, he's come out and, and made his position known on some other things, but in terms of, of this particular um uh, this particular proposal, I thought it was interesting in, in his comments that he made uh, that day that he talked about that he'd recently visited the Louisiana State Penitentiary and uh, he talked about how they had been the worst of the, you know, the worst maximum security prison in, in the country and how they had made, uh, you know, tremendous, uh, tremendous improvements. So it, I, I took away from that that it may well be that in some of those conversations, uh, clearly the governor's beginning to kind of put together his own ideas and maybe a, a very uh, interesting and bold initiative that he may roll out here in, in not that many weeks. Just to, you know, a couple of points on that. One, I, I, I'm glad that the governor went and visited a prison in Louisiana. I'd rather him go visit some prisons in Norway and Germany uh, because comparing us to one of the worst prison systems in the country and saying, well, they've improved a little bit. I mean, those improve, and, and that's really back-end improvements. You're talking about what we're doing for people after they've already been incarcerated. Criminal justice reform moving forward really ought to be about how do we keep people from going into the prison system to begin with? And so, you know, trying to say that, well, we're going to have, you know, better seminary and Sunday school services for people available, and that's going to help them not, uh, you know, recommit crimes whenever they get out. That's, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. We should figure out how do we keep people out to begin with. And then the second part is that this argument that it rolls back enhancements on certain crimes, really what that's asking you to believe, though, is to believe that longer prison sentences have actually uh, been effective at improving public safety as it results to those crimes. And that's just not the case. It flies in the face of reality. So, you know, it's like, well, we've got to defend the status quo. We've got to con- uh, defend the current system uh, in order to protect public safety. Well, we just really don't because that's not working. And so we got to do something else. Well, one of the things, I mean, when you reference the seminary um, part of kind of that conversation that he had, I mean, he was specifically saying that uh, the seminary's 200 graduates in this particular instance in this prison had gone on to uh, to, to leave prison, had uh, were successfully leading churches, that they were involved in their communities. I mean, using that as an illustration of a success story. So I don't, I don't think you can just marginalize or say that there's no benefit to looking at uh, uh, prisons in other states uh, uh, and and trying to see what has worked or not worked because clearly we know in Oklahoma we've got a, a heavy lift in terms of really addressing many of the challenges that have gone on for decades uh, within our prison system here. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.